some hard-boiled officials in the Foreign Office said, you know, why does, you know, the usually tough Mrs. Thatcher go weak in the knees when she's faced by the personable Mr. Gorbachev? This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. The Cold War got colder in the early 1980s and the relationship between the two military superpowers, the USA and the Soviet Union, each of whom had the capacity to annihilate the other, was tense. By the end of the decade, East-West relations had utterly transformed, with most of the dividing lines, including the division of Europe, removed. We're here with Archie Brown, Emeritus Professor of Politics at the University of Oxford, a Fellow of the British Academy and an International Honorary Member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He is the author of numerous books, including his latest work, The Human Factor, Gorbachev, Reagan and Thatcher and The End of the Cold War. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute only three US dollars a month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too, plus you get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter of the podcast, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Now, we also have a book giveaway of Archie's book, The Human Factor, so make sure that you stay listening to the end and check out our show notes. Back to today's episode. We start by talking about Archie's time as a British Council Exchange Scholar at Moscow State University during the years of 1967 and 1968. We welcome Archie Brown to our Cold War conversation. The last um, several books I've written are, are <clears throat> been consciously writing for a broader than purely academic readership. Um, one was called The Rise and Fall of Communism, then one called The Myth of a Strong Leader, and now this book, The Human Factor. Um, so I, I do think they've got something new to say to specialists, but um, I certainly wasn't writing exclusively or necessarily even mainly for specialists. I found it incredibly accessible. So that, that was really good for me who uh, doesn't profess to be an academic but before we start on the book can I just ask you a little bit about your time as a British Council exchange student at Moscow State University how how did that come about how did how did you end up studying at Moscow State University well, during the years of the Cold War, there were a series of um, there was a series of um, cultural agreements signed by the British government and um, communist governments in Eastern Europe, including not least the Soviet Union. And um, some of the hardliners on the British side didn't like them, and uh, Margaret Thatcher was far from keen on them. But the Foreign Office approved of them because they wanted to keep um, some kind of um, engagement going, and um, there were times when, even though relations, political relations between Britain and the Soviet Union were quite tense, nevertheless there was a certain number of academics who were exchanged each year. The, the same number of Soviet scholars would come to Britain as went from Britain to the Soviet Union, and um, the, the Soviet side tended to send mainly scientists and engineers who could learn something new about. Um, British technology or scientific discoveries while they were here, they sent them more than they sent people in the humanities <clears throat> or social sciences, whereas on our side, not so many of the scientists and engineers wanted to go to the Soviet Union and spend a whole year or a period of months there. So we tended to send mainly people into humanities and, and social sciences. And then there were cults, exchanges, other aspects as well, I mean, the theatre groups, uh, Bolshoi Bali coming to Britain and so forth. What was Moscow like during that period? Well, I went quite a number of times, but the longest time was for a whole year. 
1967-68. And it was quite tense in 1968 because it was the year of the Prague Spring and uh, the Soviet leadership and the KGB were very nervous about um, the developments taking place in Czechoslovakia, which was ceasing to be a system modeled on the Soviet one that was reforming quite radically. And of course, it ended with Soviet invasion of half a million Warsaw-packed troops in August 1968. So in that period, um, KGB paid a lot of attention to foreigners. Um, uh, I mean, there were periods when my wife and I were there, we'd be followed quite a lot. And, um, you know, sometimes in an intimidatory way that when you actually meant to, you couldn't fail to notice it at other times um, less obtrusively. But um, it was a useful experience because um, you know, one learned much more about Soviet society. Um, one of the things that people spent a lot of time there learned was that um, there was a difference between private editorials and the way people spoke in everyday life. And uh, I came to realize that you know, even within the Communist Party, there was quite a diversity of view. Um, there were people who were Russian nationalists, there were people who were social democrats, there were people who were Leninists of different kinds. Um, really, there was a pretty broad spectrum of views, especially in the party intelligentsia. And, you know, you begin to understand the strategies people have for survival and their tactics if they wish to try to introduce change within the system. So there's a great deal to be said for spending a lengthy time in a communist country if you wanted to understand how it worked and the prospects for possible change. And one of the things that helped me a lot was an exchange with Czechoslovakia in 1965. And I met people in 1965 who subsequently became very prominent reformers in Czechoslovakia in 1968. And one of them was a man called Zdeniak Mlinar, who became a secretary of the Central Committee of the Party in 1968. And I got to know him quite well. Um, sometime after the Soviet invasion, he was expelled from the Czechoslovak Communist Party. Um, and he went into emigration in 1977, having been a signatory of a document called Charter 77, which was critical of the post-invasion um, Soviet installed regime in Czechoslovakia. And uh, it turned out that he was a, had been a close personal friend of Mikhail Gorbachev when they both studied at Moscow University in the law faculty between 1950 and 1955. And uh, so it was through knowing Linaj very well that I began to learn more about Gorbachev long before most people in the West had ever heard of him. Yeah, and we'll come on to that. That's interesting. I I hadn't realised that Gorbachev had any exposure to the you know the Prague Spring reformers. I mean, do you do you think some of some of that was influential on his later actions? I think that Mlinarz, um, as a young Czech communist, probably learned as much um, from Gorbachev as Gorbachev learned from him. Um, but um, and at the time in 1968, Gorbachev couldn't openly sympathise with the Prague Spring, and indeed his attitude to it was probably ambivalent at the time. He probably he was um, far from Moscow at that time in his own area of southern Russia, um, but he must have been torn because he knew his friend Minaj was um, part of this movement for change in Czechoslovakia, and indeed. Um, they didn't meet each other between 1955 and 67, but in 67, Mlynarz visited Gorbachev in Stavropol, where he was a party secretary, and um, told him the, about some of their ideas for change in Czechoslovakia, and uh, you know, Gorbachev listened sympathetically. Um, so um, one of the most important things about him is that he, Gorbachev, is that he has an open mind and his own views evolved over time. And that becomes um, apparent in the book. So I think we, we should start to talk about the, the book now. I mean, what, why did you decide to write this book? Because you'd already done a previous work on Gorbachev, but th this is sort of pulling together his interactions with uh, Reagan and Thatcher. 
a lot of my writing on Soviet politics and on the Gorbachev era has focused mainly on the transformation of the Soviet political system, on the breakup of the Soviet Union, on developments inside the Soviet Union, rather than on international relations. And so I wanted to, and I've written specific chapters on Gorbachev and the end of the Cold War, but I wanted to write a whole book on the end of the Cold War, and specifically the interrelationship of Gorbachev, Reagan, and Thatcher. Now, some people have written about Thatcher and um, Reagan, or Reagan and Gorbachev, but nobody has looked at this triangular relationship until now. And it was quite important because Margaret Thatcher was far and away Ronald Reagan's favorite foreign leader. He spoke of her as his soulmate, his ideological and political soulmate. But what was more surprising was the quite um, strong relationship she formed with Gorbachev. Uh, They argued a lot, but it was based on mutual respect. And Margaret Thatcher became Gorbachev's strongest supporter, certainly among conservative political leaders worldwide. Yes, indeed. I mean, in the the notes for the book, you're described as the first person to draw Margaret Thatcher's attention to him at a 1983 seminar at Chequers and, you know, highlighting him as a reform-minded, likely future Soviet leader. Can you describe that seminar and the circumstances of it? Yes, that was um, uh, an interesting occasion. The um, Margaret Thatcher's advisors in 10 Downing Street, um, John Coles and Anthony Parsons, who had been... um, Britain's representative at the UN, he was her foreign policy advisor, they really helped her to come to the conclusion that it was time for another look at Britain's relations with the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And um, she decided to hold a, a seminar over two days in September 1983. And it took place just after the Soviet Union had shot down by mistake a Korean passenger uh, airliner, uh, but Margaret Thatcher began the meeting by saying that you know that would be their preoccupation for the next few weeks, but they're going to they're going to be looking much further ahead, a longer term prospects in this seminar. She took the seminar very seriously, and there are eight of us who are invited: academics, specialists on different aspects of Soviet Union or Eastern Europe, and I was there specifically to speak and write about the Soviet political system, and so we wrote papers which she annotated. Um, Later, I used the Freedom of Information Act to get the Cabinet Office version of the papers declassified, and so you could see there all her annotations, and you can see how carefully she read them, underlining sometimes question marks and so forth. Um, And then each of us spoke for 10 minutes each at the seminar to elaborate our ideas or put forward different points, and then there was discussion. So the seminar lasted most of a day, which was a long time in a prime minister's time on the 8th of September. And they carried on without the academics <clears throat> on the second day, but they're no longer speaking about the Soviet Union. And what becomes clear from the documents now, the um, cabinet office, foreign office documents, is that this seminar led to a change of policy. Um, John Coles and his um, memorandum about it said no reference will, will be made publicly to this change of policy. Um, so it was just to be gradually implemented, a policy of engagement with the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Geoffrey Howe proceeded to, he was foreign secretary at the time, he proceeded to visit all the East European capitals, <clears throat> Margaret Thatcher a few months after the seminar went to Hungary, and then later that year, 1984, Gorbachev was invited to Britain and came for the first time in December 1984, three months before he became Soviet leader. But she actually first heard of Gorbachev in the paper I wrote for that seminar, and then I elaborated a bit at the actual seminar. Uh, so the one one can criticize Margaret Thatcher for many things, um, and I'm not a great supporter of her domestic policy, um, but um, she did her homework, and uh, she really took great pains in order to be well-informed. 
it's it's really interesting that 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 part of the book because the the sort of public image of margaret thatcher is not working with her cabinet having a very firm opinion already formed and not necessarily being receptive to different points of view yet yet this shows almost a transformation in in her view of how to deal with with the soviet union well, I think there is a distinction between the way she treated cabinet colleagues and the way she treated specialists who had some useful information to offer her. Because, you know, we were not any kind of threat to her that um, she could invite us or not invite us as she pleased. And um, But, you know, we had something useful to, to offer. We, we, we had specialist knowledge of different aspects of um, Soviet Union, Eastern Europe. Um, but, you know, Poor Jeffrey Howe, who was a very capable foreign secretary, I mean, he would have great trouble finishing a sentence, you know, before she interrupted him. And so she treated her cabinet colleagues a lot less well than she treated us. Well, what was she like to, to deal with? Because presumably you you were dealing with her on a one-to-one basis to some degree here or not? Not a one-to-one. No, the, the first seminar in, in 83, there were eight of us on our side of the table, eight on the government side of the table. Then the, the night before Gorbachev arrived in Britain in December 1984, I was one of four academics invited to 10 Downing Street to, for a much more informal briefing of her and Geoffrey Howe. Um, so that, that was you know much more relaxed and um, she wasn't grandstanding at all. Um, and uh, then there was another seminar just before she went on a five-day visit to the Soviet Union in 1987. There was another Cheka seminar, and um, there were only 16 or 17 people there altogether, maybe even just 15, including people from the government. That uh, There was quite a division among the academics there. Robert Conquest had flown in from California, and he took a pretty hard line. And her private secretary at that time, Charles Paul, he wrote a big report of the seminar, which um, divided the people into enthusiasts and skeptics, um, or you could say optimists and pessimists. And um, (laughs) I was put in the ranks of the enthusiasts, uh, meaning that I thought very significant change was beginning to take place in the Soviet Union. And the skeptics were people who thought it was all cosmetic and nothing was really changing. Now, that was in February 1987, and the one thing you can say in retrospect is that, you know, even the so-called enthusiasts, the camp I was in, we underestimated just how much change was going to take place. But at least we weren't quite as wrong as the skeptics were who thought that nothing was changing. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So the the 1984 meeting of Thatcher and Gorbachev is a key turning point because that's that's obviously when she meets him first face to face and you know i think she comes out with this line it this is definitely somebody that she can do business with that was the most important thing that i mean that didn't matter really very much what i said if she had not liked him or if she decided that um he was just another communist bureaucrat then the, the relationship would not have developed the way it did. But the fact is she did like him and she found that um, he didn't um, stick to a script. You know, he could speak without notes. He could respond to points. He was witty. He smiled a lot. And um, he, you know, they had a good argument, but he was perfectly capable of holding his own in, in the argument. And um, so already she had taken a liking to him by the end of that visit. And, um, when Chernyanka died in March 1985 and Gorbachev was chosen to be Soviet leader within less than 24 hours um, from Chernyanka's death, and nobody could have stopped her going to the funeral. Reagan didn't go there for that funeral, but Margaret Thatcher did. And the time she spent speaking to Gorbachev um, when he was meeting all the main foreign leaders afterwards you know, greatly exceeded the time allocated to it. And she told them that his visit to Britain the previous year had been one of the best ever. So um, Geoffrey Howe in his memoirs mentioned that some hard-boiled officials in the Foreign Office said, you know, why does you know the usually tough Mrs. Thatcher 
go weak in the knees when she's faced by the personable Mr. Gorbachev. <laughs> and uh, so the it, her relationship with him was, you know, quite different from that with many um, foreign leaders. I mean, a lot of her um, colleagues in European countries found her less congenial to deal with. Of course, the closest relation of all was with Reagan, but but it became quite uh, a warm and friendly relationship, even with Gorbachev. Yeah. Now, now Reagan during this period, I mean, in the in the first part of the 1980s, as you mentioned, there's the shooting down of KAL 007 and also Reagan's using phrases like the evil empire. How how does Margaret Thatcher change his his viewpoint? At the time, I think she was quite happy with Reagan's um, evil empire speech and uh, took the view, well, it is an evil empire. Um but Jeffrey Howe in the Foreign Office, um, on the whole, were much less keen, and they thought that kind of rhetoric didn't help, um, that you got to live in the same world as the other superpower, and um, you know, public insults um, were not conducive to improved relations, arms control agreements, or anything else. Um, and indeed, Jeffrey Howe said to me at the 1983 seminar, and I was speaking informally with him, if you could find a way of saying to the Prime Minister that the evil empire rhetoric is unhelpful, that would be good. Um, so, um, but I think, uh, I can't remember whether we did, we probably did, uh, in the informal discussion over lunch. Um, but the academic view when she asked us for it. Um, we, we didn't think we'd be asked for policy advice. We thought we are just giving information. Um, but at one point she asked us um, for policy recommendations in 83. And our line was um, that the more contacts, the better. And at all levels, from the top general secretary to dissidents. Um, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Intelligence agencies tend to be worried about close relations with the adversary. Um, my view is that um, an authoritarian regime has got much more to lose from a lot of contacts with a democracy than a democracy has got to lose from contacts with them. And um, you know, people who went from Britain to the Soviet Union, spent a year there, did not, in, uh, on this cultural exchange, did not in my experience come back, you know, admiring the Soviet system. They might come back thinking they made some wonderful Russian friends. Uh, that was true in my case also. But they wouldn't come back thinking, what a great system. Quite the contrary. They saw the economic system was very inefficient and the political system was highly authoritarian. And people obviously were not allowed to read the books they wanted, see the films they wanted, um, or speak freely in public. So <clears throat> the on the other side, when you know, even people who were pillars of the establishment in the Soviet Union spent a lot of time here, um, they went back impressed on the whole by what they saw, the, the greater freedom, the greater prosperity. And uh, so I think it is true that the more contacts there were between people from Western Europe, North America on the one side, and people in communist Europe on the other, uh, it tended to make people within the communist world more dissatisfied with the system and even keener on changing it. Yeah, no, that, that's, that, that's really interesting. So as we move on into the, the, the second part of, of the book, 
um, on the US side, um, I think George Schultz is quite influential in in helping Reagan to recognize as well as Margaret Thatcher's influence that that you know Gorbachev is is worth talking to. Yes, um, Schultz was <clears throat> very important to the. <clears throat> I think one can say that in the British government, um, Margaret Thatcher was coming round to the foreign office view to a large extent. I mean, they were more in favor of um, engagement with the Soviet Union than she was, but after she established a good relationship with Gorbachev, she was at least as keen on it as they were. And in the end, in fact, they were worried that she was going too far. But um, in the United States, in contrast, in the Reagan administration, there were deep divisions. You know, On the one side, you had the Defense Department under Weinberger, and you had the CIA, and they were very skeptical about prospects for change in the Soviet Union. But then in the State Department, um, Schultz was very much in favor of engagement. And once he had um, met Gorbachev and his counterpart, Edward Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister, you know, he definitely saw signs of change and, and the possibility of getting arms control agreements and arms reductions that would be beneficial for both sides and more generally improving the relationship. And he really had more influence than the Defense Department with Reagan when it came to relations with the Soviet Union. I mean, Reagan did believe in strong defenses and uh, massive increases in defense expenditure under Reagan. So he believed in peace through strength. He certainly believed in the strength part. But a lot of people didn't realize that he was also serious about the peacemaking. And um, his wife, Nancy, was also very keen that Reagan should be remembered as a peacemaker and not as a warmonger. Um, so of the people in his administration, the most influential with him when it came to relations with the Soviet Union was undoubtedly the Secretary of State, George Schultz. And then a bit below him in the, well, first of all, in the National Security Council in the United States, Jack Matlock, in 1983, succeeded Richard Pipes, a Harvard historian who was quite a hardliner. Matlock, uh, who was a real specialist on the Soviet Union, he'd served in the American Embassy in, in Moscow and done several different tours there, spent probably at least a decade of his life there. And he was very much in favor of um, improving the American-Soviet relationship. So he was really an ally of um, Schultz in that respect and a direct influence on Reagan in the National Security Council. Indeed, all Reagan's letters to Gorbachev were drafted by Matlock while Matlock was there. And then Matlock in 1987 became the American ambassador to Moscow and he stayed there until 1991. So he's one of the few people who was important in foreign policy making under Reagan who continued in post after George Bush, the elder, took over in 1989 because Matlock was their man in Moscow until 1991. Yeah. Um Reagan is is quite interesting during this period because he he it's not overnight but he is definitely keen on reducing the nuclear threat and I'm not sure whether that dates from you know the Abel Archer period when he he basically became became to understand how close there was to a massive mis well massive misunderstanding is an understatement there but can can you outline a bit you know what why why does Reagan's view on nuclear weapons change to the degree that you know when they meet in Reykjavik there's almost an agreement to completely get rid of nuclear weapons yes Reagan um did have a hatred of nuclear weapons and um he had a contradictory approach to it. I mean, he was a mixed blessing for Gorbachev because with his embrace of the so-called Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, or popularly known as Star Wars, um, he made things much more difficult for Gorbachev because um, the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty of 1972, had outlawed um, attempts to have missile defense um, because if you try to develop um, defensive weapons against missiles, 
then the other side reaction will be to manufacture more and more and have multiple warheads, some dummies, some with nuclear um, uh, loads, and uh, making it impossible for even a quite well-developed defense system to deal with you know just such a massive um, attack of, of tens of thousands of missiles raining in, some with nuclear warheads, some without. So it it was liable to accelerate the arms race. But Reagan you know, had a an unrealistic vision of how you could stop a bullet with a bullet, you know, with this um, uh, SDI program. And um, it made Gorbachev's task more difficult because, you know, the, the Soviet military felt, you know, you can't do business with a man who is building the system. It, it means he's really intent on war. Um, and so Gorbachev spent a lot of time trying to persuade Reagan to give up an SDI, but it was a complete fixation for him. However, Reagan, one of the elements in Reagan's support for SDI was his you know, tremendous concern about nuclear weapons. And um, he did believe in getting rid of them altogether. But then he wanted to keep SDI in case, as he said to uh, Gorbachev, some madman got hold of nuclear weapons. And so we needed a defense system then. Um, and at Reykjavik, Reyk- as you said, in 1986, they came very close to um, outlawing outlawing nuclear weapons altogether. And um, what stopped them from reaching agreement was um, Reagan's refusal to give up an SDI, and that became the stumbling block. Um, But for Margaret Thatcher, indeed for François Mitterrand in France, you know, the only good thing about Reykjavik was that it failed because they, they were desperate to keep their British and French nuclear weapons. For George Shultz, it was a shame it failed, and um, I think most people in Europe were sorry it failed because they, they wouldn't have been sorry to see nuclear weapons uh, disappear everywhere. And if the Soviet Union and uh, the United States had given them up, it would be very hard for any other country to to hold on to them because they've got to be tested to some extent, and um, it would be very difficult for any country to have them um, surreptitiously. Yes, yeah, and and that's probably one of the rare areas where Thatcher and Reagan have uh, a disagreement because she's very concerned about the British strategic nu- nuclear deterrent becoming part of the negotiations. Yes, the um, I mean, for a time she wanted to keep them out of negotiations and, and, and did. I mean, one time when they were uh, had negotiations over the. INF Treaty, the Intermediate um, Nuclear Missile Treaty. Um, the Soviet military wanted to include French and British nuclear weapons, and um, uh, but Gorbachev, you know, conceded to Margaret Thatcher that you know they would be left out of consideration for the time being, and only when there were much lower levels would they start to be counted. Um, but yes, that was an area where um, Reagan and Gorbachev saw eye to eye more than Reagan and Thatcher saw eye to eye because Reagan and Gorbachev both really wanted to rid the world of nuclear weapons and um, felt that there was a real danger of nuclear proliferation. Gorbachev's argument with Margaret Thatcher was, you know, you say that nuclear weapons are absolutely necessary to Britain as a deterrent. Um, uh, Well, you know, every country in the world could argue that, you know, if, nuclear weapons are essential as a deterrent, we should have them too. And you know, where would it be if one country after another acquires them? It would be extremely dangerous. And I don't think she really had an argument uh, <clears throat> to um, rebut that, but um, she certainly was never willingly going to give up British nuclear weapons. Yeah, and and was Gorbachev's main motivation about getting rid of nuclear weapons was to try and reduce the defense spending within the Soviet economy? I think that Gorbachev had several reasons. Um, One was that, and of course, um, people in the military in Europe and the United States pointed it out, was that the the Soviet Union had a superiority in conventional forces. Um, Now, eventually, Gorbachev met that argument by 1988, announcing drastic reduction, 500,000 reduction in conventional forces, and in particular, those who were um, 
occupying offensive positions um, you know, ready to attack Western Europe. And uh, so he made drastic cuts in, in, in tanks and uh, personnel um, because he, he recognized that um, one reason why it was harder to get um, agreement on nuclear weapons was precisely because of the Soviet superiority conventional forces. Now there, the Soviet military were unhappy because um, they they wouldn't have terribly minded um, every country getting rid of nuclear weapons as long as they had their conventional superiority. But Gorbachev was prepared to take that away and you know to have more or less equality um, in conventional forces on the two sides. Um, and he he genuinely was somebody who thought that um, the Soviet Union needed a period of peace to develop um, internally, that he was worried, he was basically hated violence, and uh, he grew up during the war as a boy, um, really a, a daily struggle for survival, and um, he was about as far removed from being a warmonger as it would be possible to be. He was the most pacific leader in Soviet history, but he also didn't want to spend so much of the Soviet um, uh, national uh, income on on weapons because uh, the military-industrial complex occupied a larger share of the Soviet budget than it did of the American budget because the American economy was much larger than the Soviet one. Uh, so economic reasons, there were reasons for of genuine desire for peaceful relations with other countries, um, and um, he had a real struggle domestically to um, keep the military-industrial complex um, from revolting. Do you think Gorbachev was always thinking of turning the Soviet Union into a more social democratic sort of political system, or, or did the circumstances o- overtake him as, as time went on? No, he didn't always take that view that um, his... Um, development was was a gradual one. That um, uh, I mean, as a boy, I mean, and both his grandfathers were arrested in the 1930s uh, in Stalin's time. But at that time, most families where that happened, including Gorbachev's family, they thought that you know Stalin would have stopped this if only he'd known about it. Mm-hmm. When, when Khrushchev made his um, so-called secret speech to the 20th Party Congress in 1956 and uh, really exposed the crimes of Stalin and showed the extent to which Stalin orchestrated the purges and uh, was ultimately absolutely responsible for them. People who lost members of their own family then became very anti-Stalinist. The people who became the most anti-Stalinist were those, I would say, who had higher education as Gorbachev had and who had lost or or had members of their own family been arrested, whether they died or not, um, Gorbachev's two grandfather survived. But the so I would say already from nineteen fifty six he was an anti Stalinist for sure. Um and by the time he became Soviet leader in nineteen eighty five, he was a communist reformer. But thinking of reform within the limits of the communist system, but making it you know, less hardline, there would be a greater scope for discussion, there would be some economic relaxation, there would be some elements of a market, not a full market economy, but some elements. Um, and you know, the literary journals would have a bit more freedom to publish um, unorthodox um, stories, articles, but that kind of thing, and that, that's what's happened in other countries, um, Hungary to some extent. Um, but he have continued to evolve all the time he was Soviet leader. And um, by 1988, I would say 1988 was a turning point. That was when the Gorbachev announced that there would be contested elections for a new legislature to be elected in March 1989. Um, and once you have competitive elections for a legislature with real power, you're changing the nature of the system. And uh, the Soviet Union had a doctrine of democratic centralism within the party. And this really meant that um, top party echelons decided and 
everybody else, uh, once a decision had been taken, had to fall into line. They couldn't argue about it. Um, and it was decided that the communist deputies in this new legislature, um, they didn't need to follow the, the line of the party leadership. They could make up their own mind in the legislature. So the Communist Party, the Orthodox Communist complaint, it was being turned into a debating society because in these elections you had members of the Communist Party standing against each other on completely different platforms. So that was a qualitative change in the Soviet political system. Uh, and Gorbachev, in his meetings with foreign leaders, made good relations with Margaret Thatcher, good relations with a number of Western leaders, but his closest um, relationship, he didn't meet him so often, but the person he actually liked most and saw most eye to eye with of Western political leaders was Felipe Gonzalez, the Spanish Socialist Prime Minister. And they would discuss, you know, the meaning of socialism, social democracy, and so on. And they really, the politic completely agreed. I mean, by 1990, Gorbachev had essentially become a socialist of a social democratic type. Um, and then later, you know, he, he described himself as being a social democrat. Um, but even when he was still in a leadership position, he often referred to social democracy and how you know, we're coming close to it. So that was a remarkable evolution because, you know, if you go back to Lenin, Lenin hated social democrats, or, you know, socialists of a British Labour Party type or um, Spanish or French socialist type, as distinct from communists. He hated them more than he hated conservatives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm always surprised at how he managed to hold things together for so long because making such fundamental changes in 1988, there wasn't a coup or an attempt at a coup prior to 1991. Why do you think that was? Well, that is a tribute really to his political skill that, um, you know, some of the radicals in the Soviet Union and, and people writing editorials in the West, you know, would complain about Gorbachev going too slowly and you know but in fact it was a remarkably fast evolution of the Soviet Union and um he had to make tactical retreats at times. Um he he was very clever at taking the Politburo with him. I mean he would introduce some radical idea and there'd be a lot of um objections and he'd say, well we need to think a bit further about this and come back to it later. And then he would persuade a few members of the Politburo behind the scenes and then bring it back a few weeks later, and then they would adopt the proposal. So having collect taken collective responsibility for this new measure, it wasn't so easy for them you know, to just pin it in Gorbachev and say it was all his fault and, and dissociate themselves from it. So he managed to get people against their better judgment you know, to go along with things which were gradually becoming more and more radical. Um, and uh, he, similar to the military-industrial complex, he brought in Akhremiev, um chief of general staff, and involved him in a lot of discussions. And Akhremiev, in the end, did become disillusioned with Gorbachev, and um, uh, he actually committed suicide after the failure of the August coup. But for a long time, you know, he was on board, and that was very important. Um, so he had great powers of persuasion and political skill. For Gorbachev, the term politician was never um, an insult. I mean, he had great respect for politics as an activity. And um, the, um, uh, he was really an, ar an arch exponent of the art of the possible. Indeed, you know, one could almost say the art of the impossible to change the Soviet Union as much as he did within such a short time. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a comment in your book, and I can't remember the context of it, but it's around the the fact that um, Thatcher should get sent to the Soviet Union and Gorbachev should be running the UK. I can't remember how how it's worded. Um, well, at one time when she visited um, the Soviet Union, I think it was after she had ceased to be prime minister. He said, to her, well, it would be not a bad idea if you became prime minister here. Because the prime minister was the number two after the general secretary and president there. But she wouldn't be very happy as a number two. But uh, it, it is undoubtedly true. We know from public opinion polls 
that Gorbachev was more popular in Britain than Margaret Thatcher was. And latterly, in the Soviet Union, Gorbachev's popularity was going down steeply. And Margaret Thatcher was very popular. Um, when Prussians voted on Woman of the Year, um, Margaret Thatcher was chosen as Woman of the Year. And, and this survey generally, by the best survey research company in the Soviet Union, um, it, it was very Russocentric. Almost everybody um, who was talked to any question was a Russian. But... Um, when it came to Woman of the Year, it was Margaret Thatcher. So her popularity was going down steeply in Britain. Gorbachev was going down steeply in his own country, but they were each very popular in the other country. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, um, you could, it was a joke, of course, but you could say they should simply have swapped I mean, Thatcher in the Kremlin, Gorbachev in 10 Downing Street. The only snag was that she didn't speak Russian and he didn't speak English. <laughs> Because there's a, there's a nice piece you've got in the book where she visits the uh, Gdansk uh, shipyards to meet with um, Lech, Lech Valencia, and I, th- I think the comment is um, it's, it's strange how she's welcome in a shipyard in uh, Poland, yet she certainly wouldn't have had such a reception in one in uh, the UK. Uh, oh, yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, she was cheered by um, shipyard workers uh, in Gdansk and uh, in, in Poland, uh, but if she went to any factory or shipyard in Britain at that time, she would have got a much dustier reception. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, I think, you know, the, the 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 essential thrust of the book is is uh, an argument against the received wisdom that you sometimes hear, which is really it was uh, that the Soviet Union really fell apart because of the uh, economic disparities between it and uh, the the Western countries, particularly around trying to keep up with the arms race. But what what you argue in this book, and very very effectively, I, di- I did find it absolutely fascinating, is that it was really a, a you know the chemistry between these three leaders, um, and obviously particularly Gorbachev and and his sort of social democratic credentials that he evolved into was really what brought about the end of the Cold War. It was not to do with Soviet spending on the arms race. Yeah, there is um, a widespread view. I think it's probably the most widespread view, especially in the United States, that it was Western military strength and economic superiority that forced the Soviet Union more or less to run up the white flag, and which ended the Cold War. But I think there are a number of important arguments against that. And one is that um, when the West had an undoubted military superiority over the Soviet Union, um, the Soviet Union was still expanding communism. Uh, when only the United States had a nuclear weapon, um, that's when um, in the second half of the 1940s, communism was spreading throughout Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, later, um, Cuba became a, a communist country. The Soviet Union didn't start the Cuban Revolution, but they supported Castro. Um, Vietnam, the whole of Vietnam became communist. So throughout the period in which the West had, first of all, exclusive um, ownership of nuclear weapons, and long after that, a superiority in a military superiority, um, which ended really only in the early 1970s. It was in the early 1970s that the two sides acquired a rough parity in military strength. Um, but during that period of Western superiority, communism expanded. So by the mid 1980s, the two sides still had this um, rough parity in military strength. So why should they then have had to um, give up more or less and say you win? I I think that it it really doesn't make sense. And um, the other thing is we actually know the views of all the members of the Politburo when Chernyanka died. There are only 10 full members of the Politburo left. And the next leader of the Soviet Union had to be somebody who was in that group of 10. And... um, not one of them would have risked the pluralization of the Soviet political system, would would have risked the 
freedom of speech, freedom of publication that took place, contested elections. Not one of them would have said, as Gorbachev said in 1988 at the United Nations, before that at a party conference in Moscow, that the people of every country had the right to decide for themselves what kind of political and economic system they wished to live in. So this was what raised expectations in Eastern Europe. I mean, some people say, well, no, the whole Soviet leadership were united. There was no alternative to this policy. They didn't um, object to 1989. The point was it would have been a very different 1989 if any one of them had become leader rather than Gorbachev. It was Gorbachev who changed the whole political climate within the Soviet Union and the whole political climate for the peoples of East Europe. It was he who raised their expectations because until then, anybody in Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, they could conclude that if they tried to throw aside their communist rulers, they would just invite a Soviet invasion and make a bad situation worse. Invasion of Czechoslovakia in 19, uh, first of all, Hungary 56, Czechoslovakia 68, and then the martial law in Poland in December 1981, which was pressed on the Polish leadership by the Soviet Politburo. This was the pattern. So people in Eastern Europe, um, for several decades, if they'd been left themselves, would have um, thrown out their communist leaders and would have ceased to be in a subordinate position to the Soviet Union. Um, so changing that whole political climate, raising expectations, um, that, that I think is, is due to the particular personality and views and open-mindedness of the person who became General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party in March 1985. Yes, indeed. Indeed. But in the 1991, Gorbachev is unable to hold the USSR together um, and uh, he is uh, briefly deposed in August. Yes, well, this was an unintended consequence of the changes. They, um, they were all interconnected. Um, first of all, the once you liberalized and, and to a large extent democratized the Soviet Union, elections in which people could throw out their communist bureaucrat, local leaders, and, and in the Soviet republics, for example, elect somebody who was very sympathetic to the national cause, as happened in Estonia, Latvia, um, uh, Lithuania, and um, happened in Western Ukraine, Georgia. Um, all the problems the national problems and all the other problems that have been suppressed for 70 years came to the surface of Soviet life. Again, no other potential Soviet leader would have risked that. They knew that there were all these problems bubbling away underneath the surface, and so they kept a firm lid on them. Um, by liberalizing and democratizing to the extent he did, Gorbachev allowed these deep-seated grievances to come to the surface of political life. And he tried to manage the process um, without resorting to violence. And uh, in the end, the only way in which it could have been stopped would be by a return to massive repression. And there were people in Soviet leadership who were prepared to do that, but Gorbachev wasn't. So he tried to hold the country together by um, getting agreement on a new so-called Union Treaty, a voluntary um, loose federation. And um, a number of the republics signed up to it. And uh, even in as late as March 1991, Ukraine voted to stay in a referendum to stay within a <clears throat> new um, federation. Um, but um, a combination of Boris Yeltsin playing the Russian card, saying that Russian law is uh, has supremacy over Soviet law, and um, then the hardline coup against Gorbachev in August 1991 um, put paid to the Union. So um, Gorbachev greatly regretted the breakup of the Union, but he wasn't prepared to use the kind of massive repression that by that stage, expectations having been aroused and grievances having come to the surface of political life, the kind of violence that would be required to turn the clock back. Yes.
Yes. Uh, did you uh, or have you ever met Gorbachev? Oh, quite a number of times, yes. Um, but whereas I met Margaret Thatcher when she was prime minister, and only, only in the context of government seminars, I uh, wasn't part of any kind of coterie of hers. But um, Gorbachev I've met only after he ceased to be in power for the first time in 1993 when um, he spoke at Oxford Town Hall and I made the speech introducing him. Not that he needed very much introduction. <laughs> uh, then he spoke again in Oxford 1996. But you know, I've met him quite a lot of times in Moscow and I've taken part in several conferences on Perestroika and on the end of the Cold War with Gorbachev presiding. Right and and you know that as you said his his personable nature really um you know made made Thatcher warm to him as well as his ability to to argue i mean when when you spoke to him as on a one to one basis he, how did he come across oh he's, he's he's a very nice person i mean Dennis Healy when he met him in 1984 uh, for the first time, again, before he became Soviet leader, but people could see that he was the front runner um, by that time. Um, and um, Healy wrote an article in the American magazine Newsweek and said that um, you know, the only puzzling thing is how can such a nice man um, govern the Soviet Union? Um, <laughs> and uh, well, some people say, well, the answer is he couldn't, but that uh, that would be the um, view of orthodox communists who thought that, you know, he um, um, destabilized a country that had been perfectly stable before. And if you're an orthodox communist, then, of course, they've got a point because the country was pretty stable in 1985. I mean, it's another myth that the Soviet Union was in such a crisis in 1985 that you know it had to change. A lot of people pointing to the very slow rate of economic growth by that time in the Soviet Union and the technological lag between the Soviet Union and the West and even the Soviet Union and the newly industrialized countries of Asia, um, they say, well, the Soviet Union was forced into this change. The trouble with that argument is that um, Gorbachev proceeded to give a far higher priority to political reform and to economic reform. And so the Soviet economy didn't change very much at all in the first five years of Gorbachev's leadership. In fact, because um, <clears throat> of the other changes that were taking place, the economy was working less well. As a command economy, commands were no longer being obeyed. And it was as late as 1990 that Gorbachev essentially embraced the principles of a market economy. But even then, he didn't put them into practice. That really only happened after the end of the Soviet Union and under Yeltsin's presidency. So um, the argument that um, you know economic necessity forced this change doesn't hold water because uh, the, the, the big economic reform didn't take place under Gorbachev. Did you ever meet Ronald Reagan? No, I never met um, Ronald Reagan. The only um, former American president I ever met was Jimmy Carter um, in Seattle in 1985 when um, he was speaking there and I was taking part in the conference. Um, and somebody told him I was knowledgeable about Gorbachev. And so I had a one-to-one -one conversation with him. And he impressed me because he... he there was absolutely no grandstanding on his part, and he was very straightforward. And he would, he just wanted to pick my brains about Gorbachev and about prospects for change in the Soviet Union. But Reagan, I never met. But the person I know best from the Reagan team is Jack Matlock, who was the Reagan's Soviet specialist in the National Security Council, as I mentioned earlier, and then. American ambassador to Moscow in 1987 to 1991, and he played a very constructive part in the improvement of Soviet-American relations in that period. Did did you have any challenges in accessing documentation and evidence to write the book? There's a lot of information available now. Um, the um, not everything, but. Um, I went to the Reagan um, Library archives in Simi Valley, California, 
and uh, I've been to Gorbachev Foundation quite a number of times, and um, a lot of information has been declassified. A lot of the papers from the Thatcher era are declassified, so I wouldn't say that shortage of information was a problem with this book. And then I've spoken with many of the people in the foreign policy teams of um, Reagan and Gorbachev and Thatcher, um, but especially perhaps on the Soviet side and the British side. Um, and um, then there are a tremendous number of memoirs, uh, some of them very informative, very useful. Uh, George Schultz is, for example, very good. Matlock has written three books. Um, Gorbachev had an excellent foreign policy advisor, his principal foreign policy advisor, Anatoly Chernyayev, who kept diaries, and um, he published some very, very good stuff based on his diaries. And then, in addition, his diaries are, were given to the National Security Archive in George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and so they're readily available. Some of it's translated, the rest tra still there in Russian, but they're accessible to any read Russian. So um, I would say there's a massive of material, and um, yeah, I worked on this book. That's my main preoccupation for about five years, and absolutely no shortage of um, sources. Given your focus on the influence of personality and soft power, what lessons do you think might be employed now by political leaders? I don't think that um, the personality of a political leader is always um, the most important thing. I mean, and I think there are many different ways in which you can be an effective political leader. But I think you know one lesson that can be drawn from this period is that um, if you want to ameliorate um, an authoritarian regime or improve relations with them, then engagement is very well worthwhile. Um, and I think that uh, if we're talking specifically about Russia, that it's never been the case that isolation of Russia has made Russia more liberal. Um, so however much one may criticize aspects of post Soviet Russian development, and there's quite a lot, I think, to criticize internally. I mean, Russia today is less democratic um, than it was in the last years of the Soviet Union, um, less um, free political debate. Um, the It's not as unfree as a lot of people in the West make out. I mean, there's still lots of things published in books, for example, in, in Russia, which Go, which are quite unorthodox and not necessarily at all what the Kremlin would like to see. Um, and if you compare the what's published in Russia today, especially in books, um, with what was published in the Soviet Union prior to Gorbachev, it's in Brezhnev's time. There's no comparison. It's freer in Russia today. But if you look at the quality of political debate and the, the extent to which. Um, Parliament has become a critic of the executive in the last years of the Soviet Union. Compare that with Russia today. Uh, Russia is less democratic. In spite of all that, um, and in foreign policy, but in foreign policy there have been mistakes on the Western side just as great as on the Russian side. In spite of all that, I think that um, it's important to engage with Russia and um, a, a, a policy of isolation of treating Russia as if it were a so-called evil empire, um, that will not get us anywhere. Our listeners, I highly recommend Archie's book. As I said at the start, it's a very accessible book. It's a fascinating insight into the three key leaders, Gorbachev, Reagan and Thatcher. The book is called The Human Factor, Gorbachev, Reagan and Thatcher and the End of the Cold War. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters to help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group, 
where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information